Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ruby for All. Julie, what is up? There's a spider on my monitor and I can't reach it. So if I happen to hop out in the middle of this recording, you'll know why. Yes, there is a situation happening at Julie's house right now. What's up with you? I am out of my comfort area at work right now and a little stressed, but I'm thinking I'm getting the hang of it, doing some more project management related work and not my forte. I like to code, not think about all the tasks of writing code, but it's kind of like a natural progression in my career arc, I guess. So that's what I'm doing. And I'm going to be honest with you listeners. Today, Julie and I got on the call and I was like, hey, I didn't have time to think of a topic. She was like, me either. So we did what any developer would do, really. And we asked ChatGPT, what were some topic ideas? And we were looking through them. And by the way, if you have any things you want us to talk about on this show, tweet them at us or email them to us. Let us know because we need to build up our idea factory a smidge more. But we came across this idea that was common pitfalls for junior Ruby on Rails developers. And we were like, oh, that's kind of a cool topic. So Julie, what was the hardest part about learning Rails for you? I think for me, the hardest was knowing what to test. And even after pairing with a couple of people on testing, I'm still quite unsure of what to test. I struggle with that too. The other hard part for me was how to test. How do I do this right? Because I see these words and I see these libraries that we're using and I don't know how to even write these tests. So we're going to start with that one. How do you know what to test? Well, I know what not to test. Let me start with that one. Don't test Rails. And don't necessarily test the gems you're using. You should be testing behavior, not necessarily as much implementation. Does that make sense? Can you provide an example of what you mean by that? Sure. I see a lot of Rails developers and there's reasons to do this. And I'm not saying you should not do this, but I'm saying it's something you don't need to do and it's kind of verbose and there's just no need to do it. Because Rails specifically has a ton of tests. So if something's broken in Rails, chances are you're going to know about it and you should find that out through different types of tests, not these specific ones that I'm about to explain. If you create a new model and you have certain relations to it, like it belongs to a user and it has many comments or something, we're going to talk about a post and all these things. If you go in your tests and write tests that those relationships exist, that's like testing Rails. So there's a very popular gem library called Shoulda, which makes it really easy in RSpec to like add these tests. And I don't think you need to do them, right? You don't need a test that belongs to relationship works. Because if you've broken that relationship, you should find that out through other types of tests. Not testing, hey, I've added a belongs to statement. Now let me test that this belongs to is correct. Or testing Rails helper methods making sure that they return the things they should. No need to do that. But I think it's a lot around the model and the relationships and scopes and validations and stuff. You don't need to test that Rails methods are doing what they're supposed to be doing. You should test that you've implemented them correctly. That kind of makes sense. So if I had a post and there should be comments, 
then instead of testing the actual relationship, I can test that my comment got posted or something like that? Yes. Yes. So you could use a system test or a controller test. I don't love system tests. I know a lot of people do. I don't love them. So I would probably be doing that in a controller test. If you maybe you had a form and on that form, you can add comments to a post. I would be testing that when I post the params to that controller, that a comment is created that belongs to that post. Or like you would that test um, that the post's comments count has increased whenever you post parameters to that controller versus testing that your post has many comments. I also came across someone saying something about adding to the test database. So is there a way to test that without adding to the database? So a lot of times performance issues in your tests are because you're doing too many things and the database is always the performance issue. Well, not always, but in a lot of cases in Rails, it kind of comes down to the database and your test kind of comes down to that too. So if you have tests where you're creating tons of objects, as we talked about with Andy, the database can only read and write so much per second. So if you have a ton of tests that are creating a ton of objects and they're creating a ton of linked objects and you have to do all this setup, then your tests are going to get slow as the number increases. So there are a lot of ways that you can create data in your tests without actually touching the database, which I think is what you're kind of asking about. Yes. So with FactoryBot, if you use FactoryBot, there's a build stub method. You can just create a struct. For instance, if you're going to represent a really simple model and you don't really need the relationships and stuff on it, and you're not using FactoryBot, then you could literally just create a struct or create a class at the bottom of your test to represent that object. I am a big stub fan. So I like to stub things. If I'm testing the post, instead of relying on comments to actually get created, I can stub whatever is doing that. So if I'm saying post.comments.save, for instance, I can stub save and have it just return true. And then I don't need to actually create that comment. Well, that makes sense. I guess I was thinking in terms of a dot new versus a dot create? Is that also factory, something that you can do? With factory bot? Yes. So I think it's not new, it's build. Build versus create. Create persisted to the database. Build makes a new object. And build stub instantiates and assigns attributes just like build, but that's where the similarities kind of end. And it makes the objects look like they've been persistent. It creates associations and stubs them out. Instead of like for build, if I create a post and I want that post to have a comment and I'm using build. So I'm not persisting the comment or the post. One way with build, you can do it is on the comment, you could stub the post ID, for instance. So you could say post ID equals one. And so if you're not actually accessing that comment, then that will make it look like there's an associated object. And you can also pass an object in when you're using build, but build stub actually stubs out those interactions and it makes it look like it's actually been persisted when it hasn't. So one thing you can do when trying to increase your test performance is if you're using create a lot, is try to replace it with build stubbed. Okay, nice. I don't think we use factory bot at work, so I'll have to figure out what it is that I can replace the creates with. Are you using fixtures? 
We're using Fabricate. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I've used Fabricate too. Fabricate is not too dissimilar from factory bot, but it's not fixtures. And I don't really want to get into fixtures because I haven't used them a lot because I'm not really a fan. But I'm sure there's something with Fabricate that you can use. And the other question you can be asking yourself is, do I really need to create this object? Why am I creating this object? Is it only so that in this one instance, like this one thing errors out if it doesn't have this object and only for one test, then maybe you can find a way to stub. That's why I usually lean on stubbing in that case. So like instead of making sure that the post has comments, you just stub and return maybe a fabricated comment. If you're using RSpec, you return a double, which is a way to basically define methods and have them return certain things in RSpec. So like if I don't want to build comments, but I want to test that my post has comments, I would stub the dot comments method on post. And maybe I want it to return a, whenever you call a specific method, it returns true. So if I dot comments dot save, I would stub saved and have it return true. So whenever it calls comments, it just does that instead. So it doesn't uh-huh. actually verify that anything's there. I have it return what I want it to and what it will, but I don't actually create the associations. So for these stubs and mocks, how do you name your variables for them? Ooh, it depends. I guess in this instance, I would just maybe call it comments. I try to be as explicit as possible with naming because if I'm coming back to it and if I put X, because that's my favorite because I think in mm-hmm. Python, is, we were taught that. So I, or maybe Java. So I always use X equals blah, blah, blah thing. And then test X. But the more explicit you are when naming variables, the better. The more explicit you are when naming methods, the better. There are some patterns you can use when naming methods. I don't know what they are off the top of my head, but they exist. So you wouldn't name it like comment stub. No, or I would double comment double or something. I try to get away with not making as many variables as possible. So if I'm not going to reuse that stub, then I don't need to assign to a variable. I can just do it directly in the build command or in whatever command you're using to create it. Cool. Thanks. The number one reason startups fail is that they run out of money. There are so many ways for startups to lose money. Downtime should not be one. Recent studies found that downtime can cost $427 per minute for small businesses and up to $9,000 per minute for medium-sized businesses. That's every single minute. A monthly subscription with HoneyBadger helps you prevent costly downtime by giving you all the monitoring you need in one easy-to-use platform so you can quickly understand what's going on and how to fix it, which helps you stay in business. Get started today in as little as five minutes at HoneyBadger.io with plans starting at free. Yeah, you heard me, free. A big thank you to Honey Badger for sponsoring this episode of Ruby for All. So one other thing we wanted to talk about was modifying data in production. Julie, have you ever modified data in production? I don't know if I have. And I'd like to explore this topic a little further when you brought it up. Because what if I am and I didn't know it? Do you know about the sandbox command? The Rails console? Yes, I do now. I was asking a coworker about how I might grab some data if I SSH into prod. And so he responded with, here, do this. And then there was that dash dash sandbox at the end. And it reminded me like, oh, I really should be using that anytime I'm going into production so that I don't make actual changes to production. Yep. Yep. 
So when you do Rails console dash dash sandbox, what it does is everything that you do inside of that sandbox, like if you're destroying users and updating records and getting all wild and out of control, at the end of it, everything will roll back. So it rolls back everything. Nothing's actually committed. So it's basically the perfect way to get data out of production. Definitely use the sandbox command. That is 100% right. Yep. Shout out to your coworker. Because a lot of people don't know about that command. And it's very nice. Because what you don't want to have happen, which I have done, is you're in production and support needs something fixed. And you're like, oh, well, I can do this. And you're not paying close attention and you accidentally start modifying the wrong records, that's where you get into danger territory. Because once you do that, like who knows if you can come back and whatever unfolds from that, that can be a disaster. So using the sandbox command is a great way to ensure that if you're just trying to figure something out or if you're just reading data, just use the sandbox command or even test out whatever you want to actually perform in production in the sandbox to make sure it does what you think it's going to do. Because if you can get away with it, you don't really want to be modifying data in production. You want to be using rake tasks or maintenance tasks. If nothing else, you get some code review on it. But like I said, modifying data in production is dangerous. So if you can avoid it, you want to. But if you have to do it, be very careful. Is there anything I should be concerned with or be careful of even if using that sandbox flag? Not that I know of, but at the same time, I don't know if I would run users destroy all in it just because I'm paired. (laughs) But it should be fine. So from what I know, no, I think you can do it. Of course, if you were running something, I think this only rolls back database interactions. So potentially if you're interacting with a service that maybe sends emails, for instance, would this actually send the emails? I'm not sure. Like that's something I've seen happen a lot where you accidentally run something and you don't know, but the side effect of running that thing is it sends an email. Like if you're updating something on the user model, whenever that user model thing changes, it means a user signed up. So you send them a welcome email. And all of a sudden you go edit that field for every user for some reason. And now you're sending out tens of thousands of emails per second and your customers are freaking out. I've seen that happen. Wow. So you mentioned that you have modified data in production. Are you able to share about what you did? I am a bit of a cowboy coder. So it's very much an ADHD thing of like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it once and be done with it. I don't feel like I need to do all these things that I say you should do. But I try to force myself to do it. I mean, one thing I can think of is just like I said, like I was modifying something, some record in the database and... I was modifying several of them and I had like a list and I was trying to go one by one, but then all of a sudden I got out of sync somewhere. And so I started updating the records with the wrong information and I've deleted records by accident before. And then you're like, oh crap. Because if once you delete a record, you're like, now what? Because if you don't have any idea what that record was, then whatever it is just gone. I've messed up all sorts of places doing that. It's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't, I, I don't think I've a, done anything like that. That's good. You will one day. <laughs> we all do. I think it's kind of inevitable, but I think the safer you are, 
like one day something terrible is going to happen and they're like, Julie, you need to get on production and fix this. And you're going to be like banging away at your keyboard. And then suddenly be like, wait, I feel like that will happen to everyone. I want to say that I've associated into prod, not doing that sandbox thing, but forgetting that I'm in production and then walking away and then coming back and maybe mistakenly thinking I'm somewhere else, maybe my local console and doing things to that. Oh man. (laughs) Have you ever accidentally, if you have impersonation, which is a very common feature where if you have a bunch of users, maybe you want to pretend to be that user so you can see what they're seeing. I have done this more often than not of accidentally being impersonated as someone and changing something, or usually I'm able to realize before it gets too out of hand, but I've done that. And the other thing I've done is accidentally, I think I'm on my dev build and I'm not, I'm in staging or in production. Wow. that sounds so dangerous. It is. Pro tip for anyone listening. One thing that I really like to do now is have a different colored nav bar depending on the environment. So in production, it's the normal color. And then maybe in staging, it's like yellow or some other color. And then in development, it's even a different color than that. Just so it's very clear what you're in. And then you could even go on to add like even more local tooling. But at minimum, I like to have a different nav bar color depending on the environment. I like that idea a lot. I was recently working on updating some things for my kids' accounts through Chrome and each Chrome bar had like a different color at the top. Like I had the color of their favorite color. So I knew which window I was at. So I wasn't making changes to my own thing. So that was really helpful. There's a new colors thing in Safari where it can actually modify like the Safari appearance. So if you're on Safari, you can just add that. I think it's like theme or theme color as a meta tag. We'll put a link in the show notes, but that's also something you could do. That way it wouldn't actually change the nav bar color. They would just change the Safari top bar color, which is cool. Yeah. But that means everyone has to be using Safari. So (laughs) moving on, I don't know how deep we want to get in this because it kind of gets into like writing better Ruby. And I don't feel like I'm super qualified to talk a lot about that, but I'd put down here using a ton of instance variables and not using enough objects. Have you ever gone into a controller or you're in a view and you're like, okay, what's the main object in this view? And you're like, oh, it's post. And then you go to the post controller and you kind of expect to just see post as an instance variable defined, but there's actually a ton of instance variables. Like maybe even some only controlling like things in the view. Have you ever seen that? Well, I didn't know what you meant by using a ton of instance variables. But now that you're bringing this up, I'm pretty sure in my final project for the bootcamp I was in, I had a bunch of at things for a controller. I don't remember what they are now, but I'm pretty sure I did. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with it. It's more like they're better ways to do it. Because like as a junior, I would fully expect that, right? Because you're like, I need this data to be in the view. How do I get data into the view? I use an instance variable in the controller. That's how it works. But as you kind of like progress in your career, you find better ways to do it. If you were to go back to that project, I'm sure you can now refactor it. One big thing coming out of controllers, for me, I really want one to three instance variables. Three is a maximum coming out of a controller method. So my index, like ideally, if we're going back to our post example, I would just return posts. 
not the comments and not things that control the view. If I had a show navbar, show sidebar instance variable that I want to show the sidebar on the index, but not on the show page. And other things like users, current user is a big one. A lot of people have used pass around the current user instance variable. There's actually something on Rails called current attributes. So if you're using current users instance variable, passing it everywhere, check out current attributes. But not to get too deep into that, a lot of times people are passing in like things to control the view. And if you're doing that or things to like present almost the users. So one big thing people use are decorators, presenters, whatever you want to call them. But instead of adding all these methods that change things in the view and are related to showing things in the view, you actually will wrap, take the posts and present them and basically decorate them with all these other methods that are only view specific. And then you only have one instance variable. Hey there, I'm Andrew Mason, and I've got an amazing gem to tell you about, Avo. It helps you build content management systems and internal tools with Ruby on Rails incredibly fast. You don't need to deal with any CSS or JavaScript files as Avo takes care of all the UI work for you, resulting in a modern, mobile-first CRUD interface ready to deploy. Plus, it provides access to features almost every application needs, like actions, filters, search, sorting, active storage integration, dashboards, and much more. So if you're looking for an ultra-powerful and maintainable platform to build your next product or service, look no further. Avo harnesses the power of Rails, Hotwire, Tailwind CSS, few components to provide you with a fast and easy-use stack the Rails way. Don't wait any longer. Visit avohq.io and give Avo a try today. You won't regret it. What do you mean by a decorator and how are you wrapping a post in it? So presenter and decorator, I'm going to use them synonymously. I don't think technically they are synonymous, but a lot of people think of them and use them the same way. What a decorator is, an example gem in Ruby is Draper, is a decorator library. So in your post view, let's say we're building a post view and we want to show the count of the posts And maybe we want to show that in a specific format and we want to have our post date formatted a certain way. And we want to display the author a certain way. And all these things, they're not related to our data object. It doesn't change anything in the model. It doesn't change anything in the database. It's only for presenting to the user, presenting in the view. So instead of adding these methods to the model, for instance, which is where probably most people would think, oh, I need to show the author a very specific way. I'll add that to the model, like display author method or post count method or post with comments count, whatever. Instead of doing that in the model, a presenter object is a much better pattern for that. And what they are is specifically methods for how your object presents in the view. And that's it. So you're not using them in the controller, like these methods, you're not using the controllers, you're not using the models, you're not using in your jobs, you're only using them on the view. And with a library like Draper, what you do is basically, if you have posts, then you have a post decorator. And all the methods that we have related to how it looks in the view go on that post decorator. And then when we send the posts down from the controller to the view, we send those decorated posts instead of just the post objects. I see. So the gem basically, like it includes that file for you into the view so that it can access it? It takes the objects and then adds additional methods on top of them. Okay. That's a very simple explanation of what it does. So like those methods you would normally put maybe in the model, 
Mm-hmm. But if I want to display the post author, then having that in a decorator or a presenter is a much cleaner thing. And it also helps you separate and organize your app a little bit better because you know, all these methods are only for displaying it in the views. Then when you go back to do a rewrite, like a year later, where are all these methods? Oh, well, I know where all the methods are for displaying posts because they're all in this decorator. And they're not spread out between helpers and model methods and whatever else you might think of. Okay, that makes sense. And helps keep the model code specific to the model and not worry about how it's being presented. Yeah, I think a lot of times people are like, where do I put this method? I need to do this thing. Where do I put this? Maybe we can even do a whole show on that. But a lot of people have very different ideas on this. I'm a fan of service objects and interactors. And maybe that's a whole episode on its own, but I like code to be finely organized. Some people do not. I've worked with people who would use modules for controllers, but they wouldn't put them in folders. So like if we had a post comments controller, normally you would have a post folder in your controllers. And then under that, you would have comments controller.rb and it would be a module post colon colon comments. I've had someone who would not put them in folders. They would keep them at the root level. So you might have a controller that's three modules deep, but it's at the root level of the folder. And that drives me insane. I will be honest. So I like things to be very finely organized, maybe too finely. Like that's just a personal preference and like you will develop your own preference. But I like service objects. I like presenters and decorators. I like things to be in folders, nicely organized. And I like them to be small. That way they can be easily tested. I'm going to ask, what is a, you called it a service object? Is that what you called it? The simplest explanation off the top of my head is a service object is an object in your code that is responsible for performing something. Well, that's kind of the interactor pattern, but I use them kind of interchangeably. If you're trying to figure out, like I have all these methods related to charging a Stripe card, for instance, where do I put that? A service object would be a great place because it's a way to organize the code. But it's like everything related to Stripe can go in here, right? Because it's not related necessarily to a specific model and I need to make database or API calls or whatever. You need a place to put all that code and a place that makes sense. And a service object is a way to organize that. Where do you put it in your directory? I prefer the interactor pattern. So I have a folder called interactors and I have all my interactors in there which are service objects themselves. So a service object, could that also be like send an email or send a notification? Those sound like jobs. A lot of people create service objects that call jobs. So yes, you could 100% do that. You would probably want to execute the actual sending of the email in a background job, right? Because that's an asynchronous thing that could fail for many reasons. And so we don't want that blocking the application from moving forward if the user's waiting on that. So that's something I would put in a job, but you could call the job if you had to set up things for sending that email. You could do that in the interactor for sure and then call the job from there. Okay. What's another example of a service object? Yeah. When you had your episode with Brittany and she was talking about these integrations, those are perfect for service objects because they're not models. They're not controllers, so they don't really fit into the MVC pattern explicitly right there. So you want a place to put those. And before I really got into the community, there was these massive debates of fat models, skinny controllers, 
fat controllers, skinny models, you know, where do we put this data or this logic? And I prefer putting them in service objects. So if you needed to create a Zoom session, for instance, and so you have to connect to Zoom and create a session, and I would put all that in a service object. Cool. It's a way to organize data. And like I said, maybe that's a whole episode on its own. I know a lot of people are very passionate about no service objects are bad, no service objects are good. I think they're good personally. The only thing I can think of right now is what happens if you're working with someone who is strongly passionate against what you're strongly passionate about. If there's like code that keeps getting moved around or shifted because of that. That can happen because I have very strong opinions. I always do the democratic thing. And I'm like, the whole team should decide one thing or the other. Are we using RSpec? Are we using mini test? Not mini test spec, because that's kind of an example of what you were just saying of like, we're all writing mini tests, but Julie wants to write R spec. So she's added this mini test spec gem, and that allows her to write her R spec syntax in mini test. I don't love that <laughs> personally, not that gem specifically, but that type of thing where like one developer is doing their own thing, even though the rest of the team is like agreed to this other thing. That's a, place for the management to be like, okay, look, this is what we've decided. But if there is no decision and everyone's kind of just doing their own thing, that's where I think, hey team, here's this thing. I think we should talk about it and make a decision. Whatever comes of that, like write that up and put that in your base camp or wherever you store documents or in your code base somewhere. And people can refer that, oh, what do we do when we need to make an API integration? Oh, we create a service object. Or what test framework do we use? We use our spec. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, thanks so much, Andrew. I learned so much about things that can help me level up from junior and forward. I always learn that I don't know as much about this stuff as I think I do when I start talking. (laughs) (laughs) But I like finding these faults in my knowledge because then I get to learn more about them and then share them. And then we all get better. Well, we appreciate you. Well, I appreciate you, Julie, and I appreciate you, listener, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye, everyone.